on air, online, on digital, digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Coming up today, the true cost of food around the world. This is the first food price crisis that we've all confronted, where 90% of the world's countries have got high food price inflation. So Mother Nature is subsidising us. We're not paying the true cost of these four commodities. And a change in attitude towards caring for horses. When I was young, my family had a ranch. It was a cattle ranch, and so horses were treated like machinery. We didn't spend any time with them, and it was time to work with cattle. We just saddled them up, and so some of that behaviour, um, now that I understand more, I'm not too, too proud of being around it. All contained in part two of our chat with Shane Gould and partner Milton Nelms about reconnecting with horses. That's coming up later in the program. And a look at the true cost of food from experts around the world and why food security should be a huge concern, especially as we sell off the farm, like Tassel. G'day, Tony, with you on this Friday where we look at the far north businesses owned by Tassel at the moment, but they'll also fall into the hands of Canadian firm Cook Seafoods. That story coming up, the huge prawn farms in farm north Queensland we're talking about. Also being a Friday, Richard Bailey takes a look at the livestock markets here and on the mainland. We'll check the weather, which, fingers crossed, is looking good, and take your thoughts on any issue via the text line. If you want to say good day. It's uh, 0438 922 936. It's that easy, 0438 936. Now, first up, we've been talking about this issue all week. So how does the Federal Agriculture Minister feel, feel about the situation with US apples, which could be on their way to Australia soon after the Federal Government or the Department of Agriculture recommended the import of the apples be allowed? The decision has raised the ire of Australian apple producers who say it's an unfair playing field of subsidies, sprays and different standards which could drive them out of business. Warwick Long spoke to the Federal Ag Minister, Murray Watt. Yeah, well, look, I can understand some of the concerns that apple growers have been expressing about the future of their industry. That is completely reasonable that people are concerned about this. But what I can assure both uh, apple producers and all Australians of is that the strictest biosecurity standards possible will apply to any imports that we end up receiving of US apples, just as those very strict rules already apply to imports from other countries like New Zealand and China uh, and Japan. So we obviously take biosecurity extremely seriously in this country. And you probably saw even in the most recent federal budget, we've kicked in another $134 million to further tighten our biosecurity regime. But the reality is, uh, if we do want to be able to trade with other countries and if we want to be able to sell our beef, our dairy, our sheep, our wheat, our wool to other countries, then that also does mean from time to time we need to allow other countries to import to us as well. There is suggestion that citrus from Australia to the US was effectively traded off against US apples coming back the other way. Is that the case? Well, I wouldn't quite put it that way, uh, Warwick, but certainly we have an interest in exporting a range of other products, including citrus, to the US. Uh, And the reality is that um, it's very unlikely that we can open up markets in other countries for other products if we're not also willing to consider taking their imports in some cases as well. And I think what we need to make sure of is that when we are thinking about allowing imports from other countries, whether it be the US or anywhere else, 
uh, that we make sure we do it on our terms and in particular have very strong biosecurity regimes and that's certainly what we're intending to do here. Uh, as Apple and Pear Australia, the industry body that represents the apple growers in Australia, they say they understand the science behind and, and they accept the science behind the importation measures but they don't trust the government work at the borders to keep out pest and disease, citing varroa mite, guava root nematode and other incursions in recent years as areas where border protection has failed. What assurances can you give them that it will be different this time? Uh, Well, I suppose the assurances I can give them are that, first of all, we do continue to have one of the world's strongest biosecurity systems. And sure, there are examples where from time to time it hasn't picked up everything. But if you think about the range of plant, animal and other diseases that are in other parts of the world, I think Australia's biosecurity system has uh, stood the test of time pretty well. Uh, But in addition, as I say, we've taken the opportunity in the most recent federal budget to strengthen our biosecurity measures even further um, with extra biosecurity officers, extra detector dogs, uh, the livestock traceability system that we're implementing as well. Um, The other thing to bear in mind for this particular uh, issue is that um, the requirements of any trade will be that inspections need to be conducted uh, of consignments of apples on the US side of the border as uh, before they even get transported to Australia and they will be inspected again on arrival. So we'll certainly be doing everything we possibly can uh, to ensure that the sorts of diseases that are out there don't get brought back into Australia uh, and I have every confidence in our biosecurity officers that they'll do the right thing. Uh, There is also concerns from industry, and and as I mentioned in the introduction to you, to control things like fire blight, which is not in Australia. uh, Growers need to use things like antibiotic sprays, which are not allowed to be used by Australian apple growers. Um, Is that an unfair playing field if they're using products in, in America to grow apples that aren't allowed by growers here? Well, I think, again, if you look around the world and look at the entire trading system overall, um, different countries do things in different ways. Um, We have standards in Australia that apply for very good reasons and very often uh, they actually add a premium to the product. And I'd be certainly encouraging apple growers to spruik very loudly the quality uh, and the uh, green nature of much of their production as a competitive advantage over apples that come in from any part of the world. So, you know, I, I don't... I certainly haven't given up hope on the Australian apple industry. You know, we, I think we all think that Australian apples are the best in the world. Um, they're super crunchy. They're super sweet. That'll go on. Uh, and I think that making sure that we keep producing the best product we possibly can uh, is good for our domestic sales. But also, I mean, we're obviously keen to work with the apple industry to increase our exports of Australian apples as well. Currently, we actually export less than 1% of all of the apples grown in Australia. There are other markets out there that are interested in taking our apples and I, and I want to work with the industry to take advantage of those opportunities. Yeah, And just on that note, Assistant Trade Minister Tim Ayres raised the ire of fruit growers yesterday in response to a similar question saying that growers should just export more. The growers say, well, US fruit is subsidised by up to 65% to, to export as well as other fruit producing nations. Is that what holds back Australian exports like apples is the fact that they're competing in an unfair market? Uh, Look, I'm I'm sure that that does affect some producers, uh, whether it be apples or other crops as well. But, you know, every country that we try to import our uh, or export our products to has their own rules. In some cases, there are some subsidies. In some cases, 
there are biosecurity regimes that other countries impose and, and they don't like necessarily things that we do. So it's a complex system that we have to navigate our way through, but I can sure, assure the industry that we'll be you know, really cooperating with them as much as we possibly can. Uh, I've had industry figures talk to me about the opportunities they see in other countries, whether it be Japan or other parts of Asia, uh, and with a bit of help from government, we can potentially open up some of those markets even more, and that's what I'm going to be focusing on going forward. Federal Agriculture Minister Murray Watt is with you here on the country. Aaron Minister, just on a couple of other issues, if I may, uh, there is many stories. We had this on the uh, on the, the country hour yesterday. A letter from Coles to suppliers has raised questions about the actions of supermarkets lately. That letter asks farmers to pass on the savings to the supermarket if it does get savings in the in the cost of production, but also asks those same farmers to absorb any increased input costs. Is is that fair or right for a supermarket to do? Well, I think that all Australians expect our big retailers to treat our farming community respectfully and well. And I don't think we can have a situation of double standards where retailers expect to take all of the positives and none of the negatives. Um, we know that farmers are struggling at the moment with higher input costs, and that is leading to increased cost of production, which does have to be passed on uh, in some cases, at least to retailers and to consumers. And I think retailers have got an obligation there as well. So I, I, my position really is that we need to have a level playing field as much as we can and producers need some bargaining power in their negotiations with retailers and they can't be expected uh, to cop all of the bad stuff and none of the good stuff. Can government do something here? Will you speak to Coles? Uh, look, I, I probably need to get across the issue a little bit more, Warwick, uh, at the moment. Uh, it, it only got raised with me for the first time today. Um, but what I've sort of said to you is the general principle that we'll be adopting. And I'm certainly happy uh, to work with farm groups and, and others to keep our retailers to account. We, you know, obviously all Australians buy their groceries and don't want to have to pay any more than they possibly have to. But we need to make sure that producers get a fair go in this system as well. That's the Federal Agriculture Minister, Murray Watt. Talking now to Warwick Long about the US Apple's issue and the relationship between the supermarkets and producers. Now, Coles has provided a written response to the ABC. It says they're absolutely committed to working with suppliers to navigate the challenges associated with inflation to ensure they're helping Australians with cost of living pressures. While being fair and mindful of the impacts facing suppliers, over the past few months, the number of requests we've received for price increases have risen significantly. And we've decided, that's Coles... We've dedicated additional resources to ensure dealing with these requests in a fair and a timely manner and in accordance with the grocery code, being mindful of both the impacts to our suppliers and customers. When it comes to natural disasters, our fresh produce teams are absolutely committed to supporting our suppliers on the ground. We've worked closely with farmers and growers to help their businesses recover after devastating events such as the floods. That's a statement from Coles. Now, if you think the price of producing and buying food is high now, what if I told you we're not even close to paying the full cost of production? Experts are warning the bill is coming due soon. Policymakers need to take action, as Callie Buchanan reports. For every farm across the world, somewhere there's a back office, that place stashed with invoices and receipts. Some are more organised than others. Some are the glove box of the ute, maybe it's a box under a desk. But every producer has some way of working out what the cost is of what they produce. But there's a massive part of that calculation that's missing. Because Mother Nature's back office is not set up and it's not issuing us those invoices for the ecosystem benefits that we are deriving from nature to produce and consume the food feed fibre that we consume. 
Sunny Vagazi is the Group Chief Executive of agribusiness Olam International. In Australia, they're known for cotton in Queensland and almonds in Victoria and New South Wales. He's also the Chairman of the World Business Council for Sustainable Development. At the TropAg conference in Brisbane, where agricultural researchers from more than 50 nations gathered to discuss the latest science in food and fibre production, he warned the bill is coming due and governments, farmers and consumers aren't ready. This is the first food price crisis that we've all confronted, where 90% of the world's countries have got high food price inflation. He says a study into the world's four main food crops, rice, wheat, soybeans and corn, has found the unaccounted for value from the environment is staggering. So Mother Nature is subsidising us. We're not paying the true cost of these four commodities. And they looked at beef meat, pork meat and lamb meat. Almost $3 trillion of cost are not priced in. Now, already we heard that 819 million people are going to bed hungry every day. And if Mother Nature is already subsidising us by $3 trillion, what will happen if you pass that real cost on to the consumers? So there are policy questions that we need to answer, and policymakers are not waking up, not coming to the party, and therefore we have a problem that looks unsolvable. He says at a time when global food insecurity is exploding, food is both too expensive and too cheap. President of the National Farmers Federation and Chair of the Commission for International Agricultural Research, Fiona Simpson, calls it the wicked problem. One of the things that I think we need to do, and we need to do it urgently, is we need to realise that we're all in this together. We need to be moving towards a lower carbon economy, but we also need to do that in the knowledge that we have people who are starving across the world in Australia, in a country where we have so much food. Just last year alone, over two million households identified as food insecure. Now, that's in a country where we produce way more food than we should be able to eat. So clearly it's not just production and it's not just climate change and sustainability. It is about food waste. It is about how do we deliver that food. We need everybody recognising that it's a problem that we need to solve, not just domestically, but globally. We all need to work together and we need everybody to put their shoulder to the wheel. Dr Seganet Kelamu is the Director General of the International Centre of Insect Physiology and Ecology in Nairobi, Kenya. She says without food security, there cannot be action on climate change. I can't think of anything more agonising, more degrading than people who are constantly food insecure, who are begging for food. And any country which is constantly on the receiving end of persistent food insecurity cannot focus, cannot address any other human uh, development challenges effectively. It's a measure that's put to measure poverty, eradication, lifting people out of poverty. It's a ridiculous number, $1.90 a day. Who lives on $1.90? My cat doesn't live on $1.90. Are we serious that we are lifting them out of poverty? Really explain to those who make policies and do the investment how much actually their political well-being is dependent also on the well-being of people. Historically, the answer to food shortages has been to lift productivity. But with increasing climate pressure, Claudia Sardoff from the Global Research Consortium CGIR says that's getting harder to do. It's not just the productivity in tonnes, it's nutrition. 
and we really have a, a, a crazy situation in the world today with malnutrition and obesity. We need to be thinking about the productivity of nutrients, not just calories, and balance those nutrients and calories against our natural resource constraints. She says what's needed is a mindset shift. And if we're really thinking about the sort of next generation of food systems, we recognise that if all fossil fuel were stopped today and we went immediately to renewables, we still couldn't achieve the Paris targets without transforming our food systems. And our farmers in particular, our small-scale farmers, are really on the very front lines of adaptation, the most vulnerable and feeding the most vulnerable. So where does that leave Australia and Australian farmers? Fiona Simpson says it will take consistent adaptation and leadership. We certainly don't envisage that Australian grain producers are going to grow double as much crops. We've sort of done that here already. What we're about in Australia is farming smarter, not harder, and that's using data, that's using um, nature and climate change as a driver. We've got peak fuel, peak food prices at the moment. We also have peak costs of farming. And so whether you're a smallholder farmer or a larger scale farmer, it's how can you create value from what you do. Fiona Simpson from the National Farmers Federation ending that report from Kelly Buchanan. On the Country Hour, as we detailed yesterday, subject to a court hearing, Canadian seafood company Cook Aquaculture will take over Tasmanian salmon company Tassel on the 21st of November. Whilst Tassel is most famous for its Tasmanian salmon production, it does operate in North Queensland with two land-based aquaculture operations. Farming 32 hectares of prawns in Mission Beach, south of Cairns, and 200 hectares of prawns near Proserpine in the Whitsundays, Tassel has invested heavily in the north. Whilst environmental concerns have been sparked down south, what does it mean for the prawns in Queensland? Dean Jerry, a professor of aquaculture at James Cook Uni, says it's a positive reflection of a growing industry. When you get new ownership, uh, part of part of the reason for this is that the the company that is, is purchasing the other company uh, sees potential either to grow its own brand uh, internationally. In this case, uh, help with supply. Uh, but also sees that there's there's really potential to to grow that particular company or set of companies within the region that they operate. So I'm not sure exactly how the the purchase by Cook off Tassel will translate into money on the ground, but potentially it's good news here in North Queensland because uh, further funds may be diverted into growing the current operations in North Queensland around the prawn production itself. And that leads me perfectly into my next question, which is, is it a good thing? Because what this does signal is more money, more investment in a sector that many say has had numerous barriers and what many in the industry say is really red tape to further development. If through this deal, there will be increased investment in the operation in the prawns in North Queensland, then we should see the prawn sector, particularly in Queensland, where where basically all the industry currently is located, uh, will benefit. There'll be more product on the market. There'll be export potential here too, because maybe this is part of the strategy. Currently, Australian prawns are wholly consumed domestically, but they do have a high 
recognition internationally as a high-quality product, particularly because we farm the black tiger prawn in Australia, which in places like Asia is the premium prawn product. I guess uh, any investment into North Queensland to help grow the sector is a good thing. Tassau is very well known for investing in and adopting the latest technology in the aquaculture industry. Do you think that this will continue with news of the takeover? Very technologically driven aquaculture operation which adopts the latest technology and uh, innovations and this may actually be again what increased investment may allow them to do is to you know continue to mechanise and automate and innovate within their operations to increase uh, not only productivity but the sustainability of operations. What does this represent for the industry as a whole? Aquaculture has in the past been a a high risk uh, enterprise in terms of investment and particularly in in the north given very tight environmental regulatory regimes and issues around labour, getting getting skilled labour and, of course, the tyranny of distance from markets. Uh, the fact that an international company is investing in an Australian aquaculture company shows that there is, there is real confidence about the long-term uh, potential to to grow and to produce high-quality Australian product, whether it's salmon or prawns. Dean Jerry, Professor of Aquaculture at James Cook University, speaking now with Lucy Cooper about the takeover of Tassel by Canadian company Cook Aquaculture, which does include those two big prawn farms in the far north of Australia. Wine fanciers across Tasmania will be tasting some of the state's best drops of wine over the next two weekends. This weekend, Southern Vineyards are opening their gates to the public. Next weekend, the Tamar Valley's annual Effervescence Festival has a host of wine tasting events. Sparkling winemaker Dr Frida Hanskens is involved in an event that takes people through Tasmania's different sparkling wine styles and winemaking techniques. She's told Fiona Breen that in just 15 years, Tasmania's sparkling wines have been changing. There's an awful lot more of it. Really, really high, getting a really good reputation for uh, for um, for quality, for excellence, but also for its own unique character. Uh, winemaking and viticulture in Tasmania is a lot more professional. It's also a lot more confident. It's got its own voice. There are we're producing wines that can only come from Tasmania. There's no longer that sort of that sort of cultural cringe, oh, you can't believe that it's champagne. People are realising that, no, we're not champagne and we don't actually want to be. So are you seeing these changes, this development in actual sparklings throughout the years? Yeah. When I was still studying, but I was working for a contract winemaker 2008 to 2011 at that point. A lot of people had sparkling wines, but they were sort of like an afterthought, mainly because they felt that customers wanted it. And it was all the classic 60% um, champagne, 60% Pinot Noir, 40% Chardonnay. And now people have realised that, hey, we can grow really good um, Chardonnay and we don't need to keep to that rule book. We can do what we want. So you've, starting to, you've been seeing 
a huge explosion in Blanc de Blanc, and particularly people having their wine are uh, leaving their wines for longer, so they're on the yeast lease for for longer. So um, it's taking a longer time to release those wines. We're, okay, so it's really still quite complex, isn't yeah. it? Your own wines, your mm. own sparkling, you're leaving it for six or seven. Um, yes, yeah, yeah. is that Some, correct? Um, Something uh, like sometime, that. Sometimes I, uh, I haven't got. We're so small that I haven't been able to leave it for ten years yet. But, um, but, but that's on. We've well, got to make this. money, don't you? You've got to be able to sell it. Yeah, so, that's I mean, right. that sounds uh, even worse than whiskey. Yep, that's right. It's, um, your accountant doesn't want to know you for a very long time. <laughs> that, which is also when the uh, for Tasmania with the fledgling industry. That's also why it was so hard for people to leave it that that for long. longer. Um, because they need um, they needed to pay for the, the posts and all the rest of it. And they needed cash flow, and sparkling does not lend itself to cash flow. So now that uh, Tasmania's sparkling industry is developing, are more people able to, or more winemakers able to leave a, a stash for yeah. a bit longer? Yeah, I'll, and then charge a premium when they sell it. Yes, uh, that, that's one of the lovely things to see. Well, you've seen with um, people like Delamere, for example, um, also Marilla with their with their late disgorged. But you're also, I know you're doing a, a tasting event this weekend. You're also looking at some that aren't kept that yep. long. So yep. that's the big end of the, there's quite a different end of the scale there, but they're still really popular. Yeah, um, the pet nets, they're um, otherwise known as the ancestral method. So that's when people just bottled or put a cork in um, and wine that was fermenting. It means they're so young, you've still got all this floral and fruity type stuff. And that's what those wines are for. They particularly drink them that that year. Great with light food, warm days, lots of friends. So, so Tasmania's sparkling industry, and here in southern Tasmania, that's what you're talking about today, is really developing. And it's yeah. still, there's a lot of demand, isn't there? Yeah, there is. And it's getting harder to leave, leave things on the leaves as long as you'd like um, because... You've got customers wanting your wine. Oh, that's that's a happy problem. There's a lot of pressure on um, all anybody who's making sparkling in Tasmania. It's they can sell it faster than, than they can make it. You can't pull an eight-year-old sparkling out of thin air. And just to talk about you personally, your background is ac- actually agriculture. Yeah, I was born on a dairy farm in New Zealand um, and became a research scientist. When I came to Tassie, it was to work on farm forestry with uh, CSRO Forestry and the university. But the vineyards called. Well, since I've been in Australia, I've had a bad habit of making friends with winemakers. And when my area of research was heading up to Queensland, to Gympie, um, my husband just turned to me and said, well, if you can't beat them, why don't you join them? So I thought I was going to be a, re- a viticultural consultant and I've ended up being a winemaker instead. Sparkling winemaker Dr. Frida Henskins taking part in a sparkling spectacular tasting in Hobart, which is part of the Southern Spring in the Vines Festival, where a lot of vineyards are opening their doors to the public this weekend. If you're looking for something to do, we'll check the weather, see how it is over the weekend in just a moment. Also, coming up, part two of our chat with Shane Gould, reconnecting with horses. 
And what's the upcoming cherry harvest looking like? First up, the news headlines with Ellie Ward. Thanks, Tony. The Prime Minister says the private sector needs to step up preventative measures against cyber attacks. Anthony Albanese says attacks on big companies such as Optus and Medicare are an urgent wake-up call. Outgoing Bernie Mayor Steve Cons has expressed concern about the arrival of a cruise ship with known COVID cases docking in the city tomorrow. A number of passengers on the Coral Princess have tested positive to COVID. Public health say they won't be allowed to disembark. The New South Wales Premier is visiting the town of Forbes in the central west as the town experiences one of its worst floods on record. The husband of the US House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has been released from hospital less than a week after he was seriously wounded in a hammer attack at the couple's San Francisco home. And the Reserve Bank predicts inflation to peak around the end of the year and then decline towards the 2 to 3% range. In its latest statement on monetary policy, the RBA expects inflation to reach around 8% by the end of the year. More news at one. Time now to check the latest on the weather. Michael Conway joins us from the Bureau. Hello, Michael. G'day, Tony. What a nice story I have to tell today. (laughs) You've got a smile (laughs) on your face and we've got requests coming in left, right and centre from people like Reid who says, uh, Good afternoon, Tony. I hope you and the guys are well. Myself, Cam and Flynn are heading off to the northeast for the opening of the cray season for the northern zone. If you would be kind enough to get the weather folks a nice forecast for me, we would be all grateful. Kind regards, Reid. Well, what's what's it looking like? Yeah, so um, it's looking pretty good out there in the northeast over the water. The winds will be probably west to northwesterly up there and it may reach up um, in the afternoon tomorrow to be about up to 20 knots, but generally it's about 10 to 15. There will also be sea breezes around in the northeast tomorrow uh, and Sunday. So it won't be it won't be too bad um, wind-wise, I would imagine, out there. A bit, a bit of like cloud paps, Tony. Okay, as so well. it won't yeah. be calm, but it won't be um, desperate. So uh, take care yeah. and keep safe to, uh, to everyone heading out on the waters. Um, have we had any rainfall of note anywhere? We had a couple of very light falls in the west. Uh, in the central west, though, the highest reading was Lake Margaret at 18 millimetres. Uh, Zian was a notable at 7 millimetres. But the central west was just about the only place yesterday that had rainfall of any note. OK, I should have trumpets and drums and things happening, but you can roll out the good news now. <laughs> what can we expect? Yeah. Yeah, so there's a high-pressure system um, that is bringing this lovely fine weather for most of the state at the moment and and clear skies for most of the state, except in the west where it's cloudy in parts of the far northwest. And looks like there's also a bit of cloud around um, St Helens there with a little trough on the coast. But uh, the high is going to move over into the Tasman and start directing warmer um It'll be over us on the weekend and they move into the Tasman on, on the um, late Sunday into Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday. And as that happens, uh, it will start getting some warmer north to northeasterly winds, which will keep weather fine and will increase the temperatures to around the mid, mid-20s uh, late on Tuesday into, uh, Tuesday into Wednesday and perhaps even up into to the high 20s. So it's going to be quite warm next week, which is, which is great, I reckon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can hear you breathing a sigh of relief. We've had enough. Yeah. we've had enough bad weather, I think. And, yeah, uh, and I should have said that there's no. We're not expecting any significant rainfall at all. There, there's just a chance of a, of a very light shower, then just a slight chance over the next few four or five days. So, okay. Um, yeah, not not bad at all. And I can imagine you've been the brunt of many 
uh, jibes from friends and uh, relatives? Eh? They they expect me to be able to influence the weather, but I keep <laughs> telling them I can't do that. <laughs> oh dear! If only we could. If only we, if we could make it yeah. rain at night and you know not during. No, it yeah. doesn't happen, does it? No, it doesn't happen. No. No. Um, so that's looking good for the outlook. Um, do we have any warnings at the moment? There's absolutely no warnings at, for today and tomorrow. Gosh, fantastic. And I, yeah. uh, we were talking about the coastal waters before, so let's have a look around the, around the state, the coastal waters and swell. What's it looking like? Yeah, sure. So the winds for today, we've got western northwesterlies at 10 to 20 knots, and then but tending variable about 10 knots about the central east um, and... Um, also, we're expecting inshore afternoon sea breezes about the east. The winds tomorrow, north to northwesterly, is at 10 to 15 knots, reaching up to 20 knots about the northeast in the afternoon. And then winds tend variable about 10 knots uh, in the southeast during the day, with the inshore afternoon sea breezes about the east of the state. The swell's about in the west and the south today. We've got a southwesterly swell at about four to five metres, easing to around four metres in the evening. Tomorrow, there's a southwesterly swell at three to four metres. In the north, there's a westerly swell of up to a metre today and tomorrow. For the east, there's a southerly swell today of one and a half to two and a half metres. And then um, that's also tending southwesterly around four metres offshore in the south. Tomorrow, there's a southerly swell at one to two metres and then tending three to four metres offshore in the south. Tony. Okay. We've done the wave riders, have we? No, no, that's... Oh. Um, Cape Thorell's 4.2 metres. Mariah Island is 2.3. Fabulous. Michael Conway, you have a great weekend. Thank you. Thanks, Tony. See you. See you later. Michael Conway from the Bureau there. A couple of things to mention to you. Dairy giant Fonterra has announced it will settle its long-running legal case with farmers after cutting their prices back in 2016. Uh, the company will pay $25 million to settle the class action taken by farmers affected by the so-called dairy crisis, where the company retrospectively cut its milk payments back as a clawback. More than 350 farmers are involved. Now, if you want more information on that particular story, and a court does have to approve uh, this class action settlement, by the way, so it's not finished yet, and I'm assuming the lawyers will get a lot of money, a lot of that money, that there's more online at ABC Rural Online. Uh, so go and have a look at that story. Warwick Long's put that story up for you. And Andrew and Grove. G'day, Andrew. Uh, so we are to import US apples so we can export Australian apples. Is it just me or is this a bit confusing? Food miles, cost of freight and lack of profitability will make sure this cannot happen. Might be a shock to the minister, but most countries in the world are gravitating to buy local and support local. Thank you, Andrew, and uh, hope you're having a good day as well. 0438 922936, that number. We shall have part two of our special chat with Shane Gould and a partner in just a moment. This week on Landline, meet Alex, the robotic avocado packer. What do you think about your new working buddy? Uh, she's not very talkative. And why are so many vets across Australia struggling? We have to educate them to say we don't have Medicare. No one knows that that x-ray machine that I just took x-rays on cost me $94,000. That's Landline, Sunday at 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. 
Now to second part of our story around former champion swimmer Shane Gould reconnecting to her horses at a property near Bishano on Tasmania's east coast. Today Shane tells Hilary Burden about the decision to have two new horses two decades after her last couple of horses and her support from her partner, international swimming coach Milton Nelms. So we, we just love riding in the in the bush and taking taking them for walks. Milk doesn't ride very much. He's learning how to ride now, which is a massive thing, you know, big big thing for, you know, someone in their seventies to learn how to ride. Um, and for you to get back on the horse. And then Shane. for me too. I'm I'm still really pretty wary. Were you nervous you know? to begin with? Oh very nervous, you know, and you know, I just sort of slide on and slide off and I thought, Okay, this week I I plan to you know, by the end of the week, I'm going to get on and off ten times. You know, and and that was it. You know, I didn't didn't move, and um, and then, you know, because I've got aches and pains, and I'm, I'm, I'm actually I'm not a great jockey. You know, I'm not a great rider, so I was a bit scared. So I'm just going, you know, going with the flow and feeling. Oh, the main thing is we don't want to break bones, <laughs> we don't want to strain anything, and. Um, we want to want to have a nice time. What's it's brought out in you, Milton? Well, I, I uh, when I was a when I was young, my family had a ranch, and horses. It was a cattle ranch, and so horses were treated like machinery. And we didn't spend any time with them, and it was time to to work with cattle. We just they saddle them up, and and so some of that behavior um, now that I understand more, I'm not too too proud of being around it. Um, and plus it was, you know, being a young kid, the bottom of a kind of a macho pecking order, it was, it was fun for them to provoke the horse and see me get bucked off and have to walk eight or 10 miles in a brand new pair of cowboy boots to, to find it and stuff. You know, that was just the kind of culture. So I had really little interest, uh, when Shane had her horses in the early two thousands and, and she mentioned the one that she sold, uh, the last horse she had. I, I became became intrigued by uh, the the people that she was around uh, and what they did, but we decided, uh, really mainly Shane's decision, that that was it, no more horses, because it, 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 the, unless you're really at the top of your game, they're dangerous. You need to be very very alert and you need to be involved. And so, um, yeah, so I had no expectation, uh, but when she said she wanted a horse, I said, well, okay, let's just. Let's see what happens. Commit, and so, yeah, make, make, make the commitment. Make the commitment so that at our age, that's pretty much for the rest of your life. Yeah. You know, because I, I don't really want to see these guys moved on from here. Yeah. It's not right, right to do it to them. And, and the pandemic's made that readjustment for you. You didn't really have that choice. Your life was often on the other side of the world and traveling. Yeah. You've made that adjustment? I've made that adjustment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, I was, I'm all in in my work and I'm still, I've still got projects all over the world, but, but I've, I've decided that, uh, um, when you have horses, my feeling is, is that you just can't really be away from them that much. It's not that fair. It's not fair to them. And, um, and, and horses don't work well by zoom, but human beings, <laughs> human beings seem to have adapted to that. And so I'm, I'm just fine sitting here on the East coast of Tasmania. So, are you both going to get? Are you both going to get on horses? Is that a picture in, in yeah. your mind's eye yeah. eventually? Look, look the, a lot of people think think about horses about riding them, mm. and a lot of people who ride them think about fast. Okay, I, I don't like speed. You know, um, so to me, it's all about the about the tricky things. You know, having the horse do sort of little dressage moves. Um, 
you know, being able to, to use Suki particularly, may, maybe Windowie, but Suki particularly, to, to pull a log, you know, or a tyre. Or We've got these piles of manure in the paddock here um, and we've got a, a little harrow, set of harrows. I wanted to be able to just walk back and forward, walking behind a long raining, to spread the manure, you know, so she's got to you know, earn her keep. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I've done a bit of, um, a, a bit of uh, harness work because I, I was the WA state ploughing champion in 1993 and 1994 <laughs> in Western Australia. But I had people who knew what to do, but it's an extreme sport. And, it, and so I'm being very, very cautious, very, very careful and um, just going really steadily when Suki's in the right mood, the weather's right. And, um, but she, she's very good. I've got her to pull a tyre so far and... <laughs> Yeah. If horses could talk, I wish I knew. Windari is standing between the two of you, between Shane and Milton. <laughs> he's, he's listening in and yeah, being, being part of the conversation. And... He recognises the sound of two words, carrot and apple. <laughs> and that's what, he's, that's what he's standing here waiting for, is that magic word. So you'd see him perk up when I said that. His ears definitely went back. It's, an, it's another life. It's, it certainly is another... You know, I, I didn't realise that there were so many horse people on the on the east coast and they all you know just quietly going about their business taking care of their horses and loving them and using them and and it's it's a wonderful um underground group of people that uh, yeah yeah it it is another life there's a facebook page called aging women of australia <laughs> i've joined that and a lot of people are just most well they're women of course because it's an aging you know women but, but a lot of women are getting in back into horses you know in their 50s and 60s but I don't see, you know, the stories of men getting into it, whether they're not narrating it. But um, apart from Milton, apart from Milt, yeah, he's an exception. <laughs> but he's an he's an exceptional person, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. You really have to submit yourself to to be a learner, mm. you know. And you can you go through what someone called the silly bridge. You have to cross the silly bridge and you know go from being incompetent to competent. And and that 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 transition can be really. Um, humiliating, really difficult, and and I'm experiencing that again as I learn about two new horses, and and I'm a different person being older, and a different environment, and and I feel a bit silly and stupid sometimes, and think oh maybe I shouldn't have got into this, but but I think that as as aging, now that's something we can we can continue to learn till the day we die. I see the horses as a teacher, you know, what can I learn from them as well as having snuggles and cuddles and just admiring their magnificence. <laughs> just a lovely chat, wasn't it? Former swimming champ Shane Gould and a partner Milton Nelms and their reconnection with two horses on a Bichino property and that story from our reporter Hilary Burden. I don't quite know if I've crossed the silly bridge yet. <laughs> Think about that one of you. Uh, coming up in a moment, we'll look at the cherry season. Your afternoon. In a very, very festive mood right now. With Helen Shield. You have a day dedicated between brother and sister. Ah, uh, beautiful. I'm going to shower him with gifts and food and he's going to do the same to me. <laughs> have you given him a, a specific hint about what you would like tomorrow? Oh, I said I was I don't like what you buy. Just give me money. <laughs> <laughs> Your afternoon. Never too old for money in a card from a family member. On ABC Radio Hobart. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Uh, 
0438922936 is that text line number. Richard Bailey up for you very shortly, but with Christmas less than two months away, yes. If you're planning a festive feast, you might want to order your cherries sooner rather than later. Consecutive La Nina events have wreaked havoc on the sweet red fruit with a decrease in production last year and supplies likely to be tight again this harvest. Robobank Associate Analyst Pierre Piggott says Australia's cherry sector is in an expansion phase, but the wet weather has caused big issues for growers. Cherry trees are a very difficult crop to produce and to harvest, and unseasonal rain has really damaging effects on the quality of the cherries. So last year we saw that there was lots of November rain in these major growing regions, and that led to things like cherry splitting and low volumes. We saw a decrease in total production of around 15%, but a decrease in exports of around 20%. So when there's the unseasonal rain, we have less of the quality cherries that we're able to export. And so that definitely has an effect on farmers and their margins. What did the drop in cherry production mean for farmers in terms of uh, prices that they were getting at the markets? So export prices uh, over the past year have actually remained quite stable, only up 3%. Because of the lower volume, um, There has been that's been good in the export market, but there is a lot more competition from countries, say, like Chile. But coming into this year, we're going to have lower supply and also increased costs because the wet weather has um, additional uh, costs and factors that producers need to take consideration of and that will end up possibly reducing their margins this year as well. In the context of inflation on fruit and vegetable prices, do you have any idea at this stage um, what Australian shoppers could be paying for cherries this year um, at, at the supermarket or their local fruit grocer? So while we don't exactly have a forecast for the retail price, We do expect that because the supply is tight, producers' input costs have been rising. Things like fertilisers and labour costs have been rising um, and additional costs because of the rain. We might see elevated prices in the retail space. Even if there are some elevated prices in the retail space, are you aware at this stage whether that will help farmers get some return on investment with those rising input costs or is it again likely to be quite tight? or operating at a loss? Yeah, it's still likely to be quite tight because of the additional costs of the unseasonal rain. So depending, you know, it might be quite different for particular growers. Some growers say in Tasmania, there's a higher percentage of uh, protected cropping and that may um, protect growers um, because their volume and their quality uh, is not as much affected by unseasonal rains. However, if you um, aren't using protected cropping, um, then you might see, you know, further losses. Now, um, cherries are especially popular around Christmas time, and and this will be the first year uh, in a long time that every single state um, has its borders totally open. WA was still closed last Christmas. So I guess Mm. for people planning that that Christmas lunch and all those festive celebrations um, with, you know, some supply issues around cherries, yeah, how early might they need to be starting to get to get orders in if there is, I guess, a, you know, a bit more of a, a shortage or a tighter supply uh, due to those weather events? While volumes are likely to be down, uh, quality uh, cherries are also likely to be down um, because the unseasonal rain can cause uh, things like cherry splitting and um, that can cause quality issues. The sweet cherry sector has been growing in the last four years. Can you tell me a bit about um, just how much it has been growing? Over the past four years, uh, planted an additional 450 
thousand cherry trees and we also have uh, more coming into production soon so we roughly have um, around now around three million cherry trees in Australia some of which um, are yet to reach bearing age so still got a lot of production upcoming and in the next few years we should start to see our production improve. In terms of that growth in plantings in cherry trees um, are you aware what's been driving that? Long-term demand for cherries is still growing. You know, it's a quite a valued fruit in Asia, particularly for Chinese New Year and um, particularly in Australia with Christmas. Uh, so there is still growth opportunities and that's why that we've seen uh, a rise in cherry tree plantings. What proportion of Australian grown cherries are exported and um, what proportion then is uh, consumed domestically? About 25% of the volume of Australian cherries are exported, it's about a quarter, but they do represent about 45, uh, 40% of sales value. So while 70% of um, Australian cherries are consumed in the domestic market, the export value is much higher. And that means that for returns for growers, it's really important that they um, do grow their export market because that's where they can make better gains. That's Rover Bank Associate Analyst Pia Pickett speaking with Eliza Burlage looking at uh, the upcoming cherry harvest, mainly across the mainland where there could be shortages there. Well, time on a Friday afternoon to head out to the livestock markets and say good day to Richard Bailey. Afternoon, Richard. Good afternoon, Tony. Going very well. And good is the word for the day. There's some good weather on the way, some warmer temperatures next week. And uh, you won't know yourself at Parana on Tuesday afternoon, I reckon. <laughs> you reckon we might be in shorts? Yes, <laughs> oh, well, that'll be shorts, shorts, thongs and, uh, and T-shirts, yeah. Um, perhaps not in the sale yard, but it'll certainly help the grass grow and it'll dry out some paddocks that are very, very wet at the moment. So that'll be good news for everyone all around, I reckon. Yeah, I reckon. Mm. Uh, next door cattle sale, just before we start in the cattle, when's that? End of the, end uh, 24th, of the month? Okay. which is what, uh, that's three weeks away. Okay. Yeah. Three well, weeks from yesterday. Yeah. Let's, let's look yeah. at the cattle market. Uh, how how did it travel this week? Yes, it's sort of just going sideways. It's 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 very strong uh, on the back of, of small and just fairly small numbers through the sale yards. And also, you know, restockers and and feeders are very, very strong through all these sales. And so, you know, it's uh, meaning that everything's staying up pretty well. Any any good quality yearlings and vealers are making, and this is in interstate yards, are making anywhere from sort of four fifty to five fifty cents a kilo. And there are vealers that do get to six hundred cents, but they're only odd ones here and there. Your grown steers um, are more like sort of four. 70 to 500 cents and then most cows are making anywhere from sort of 360 to 420 the the higher prices are further north like when you get to Wodonga and Wagga um, most of your averages are over 400 cents a kilo for your better types of cows. Further south at uh, Leangatha and Pakenham and Mortlake, uh, their averages are more sort of in that 380, 390 bracket. So obviously um, there's a little bit more of a shortage for the processes up north for those. But yeah, look, all the store sales have been humming along. An odd, an odd report, there's a couple of little bit cheaper in places but just generally speaking I looked at a Mortlake store sale and the, the, the most of the steers over 400 kilos 
are, are making around that 570, 580 cents a kilo, which is colossal money. And then you get under the under the small in the smaller ones, and you get up to there's a line of 60 Angus steers that weigh 220 kilos that made over 900 cents a kilo. So, you know, that's over two thousand dollars for you know, pretty small little calves. So terrific money. Um, I, I can't see why that'll change in the immediate future, Tony, purely on the back of the seasons that are happening right through here and through Victoria and New South Wales and Queensland. I was talking to Trevor Hess, who's our our longest-serving reporter in Queensland the other day, and he was just saying that, just in general terms, most of Queensland's in very good shape, and Queensland's a very big paddock. So while that's the case, I think you'll find that the, the store cattle prices will stay up, and therefore the processing prices will have to stay in the same category, I think. Yeah, and a few areas still being affected by floodwaters, I believe. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know whether anyone saw the, the picture of the Gunnedah sale yards <laughs> where you know the water was up up to the to the rail where the auctioneer stands. So there was definitely um, there's definitely a lot of rain up through there. Look, as time goes by, obviously it'll dry, and um, there'll be a it'll damage some crops, no doubt, but. Look, that's the way it is at the moment, and we just take it as it comes. Now, the lamb and sheep market, uh, Richard, what's happening there? Uh, interesting early in the week, Tony, uh, 22000 at Bendigo and 20000 at Ballarat. Both markets were quoted a little bit cheaper. Then starting to get some decent numbers into Horsham, 10000 there. Uh, Hamilton had just starting to build up, but they'll be another month before they really get going. But it was interesting, we got to Wagga yesterday and there were 28,000, which is 8,000 less. And their market went off the show. They had a lot of their lambs quoted at 850 cents and nudging 900 cents in places. It meant that their heavy lambs are making anywhere from 240 to $289 a head. And then even your better trade weight lambs that were under $200 a couple of weeks ago are over $200. So there's obviously a shortage of lambs Overall, and it's just a, it's a matter of which markets get knocked around. Bendigo and Ballarat, they weren't ridiculously cheaper. They were 4 or $5 cheaper. They, there is also quite a big difference between the well-finished lambs and the others, and there are a lot of the others at the moment. A lot of these lambs haven't done because it's so wet and been fairly chilly. Uh, so a lot of the lambs are going to be in that bracket, and I think we've talked about it numerous times over the last month or so, but there's got to be a lot of these lambs that are going to end up going back through the shearing shed and are going to ba- end up back on the market in January, February and March. And that might be an interesting interesting little scenario. I think we were thinking that by now we'd see a correction in this land market. Hasn't happened yet, but one would think that it's around the corner. But it's certainly holding up very well at the moment. Mutton market also kicked a bit during the week um, a lot of the sheep quoted anywhere from five to six hundred cents a kilo, uh, except for the very heavy sheep that are sort of four hundred to four hundred and fifty cents. But uh, word is that Fletchers came into the southern markets, and when they come in, they buy, and and uh, that pushed that market up. So um, pretty good news there. The, also, Tony, on sheep still, um, the ram sales are continuing on, and you've got British bred Corries and Merino ram sales over the next month. Uh, if you're looking for rams, have a bit of a, uh, a chat there. The other thing is I noticed in one of the ads that at Parana next Tuesday, there are going to be about 700 
new season store lambs in the market. So that'll be a pretty interesting thing to see what happens there, I reckon. All right, Richard, we'll uh, we'll get details off you uh, when we talk next Wednesday. You have a great weekend. Good on you, Tony. Yeah, Richard Bailey back with us next Wednesday with all the livestock information for you. Don't forget our ABC Rural online page or our ABC Rural Facebook page. Plenty of good stories there, including the one about Fonterra and the class action. Have a happy and safe weekend, and we will catch you after midday Monday.